welcome to the Pop Culture Club Podcast. I'm Jim Laskowski, and I have to tell you right up front here that this conversation you're about to hear is very special. Um, you know, again, expressing love of music is very difficult for me. I often get really bummed out that um, a lot of people who suffer from depression and anxiety to the point where putting on a song like, I don't know, um, Moonlight Sonata or Brian Eno's An Ending doesn't lift them up. You know, I, I want that to be the magic prescription or the, the cure for everything because for me that's all it takes. Because when I'm in a really dark place, I can now just pick up my phone, type into Apple Music, uh... The Rachels, and here comes their entire discography at my disposal, though I obviously own most of it on CD too, but um, if I put on that song that you just heard that opened this episode, I'm no longer uh, depressed, anxious, or unfocused. In fact, when I think about it, you know, when I'm not experiencing music, or I'm not experiencing film, or I'm not reading a book, that's when I actually feel my most disconnected even socializing, it's like really difficult for me because I, I feel most at place in the world of some kind of artistic expression uh, to where it's like even difficult to communicate. And I don't know, somehow the radio programs that I was on early on in the podcast here hopefully has alleviated some of my uh, insecurities. But at the same time, I'm, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm in the most comfortable place unless I get to um, make music, listen to music, uh, talk about music, and the same goes for film too. But uh, for this particular episode, holy cow, uh, I have got a treat. This really, to me, is um, the end-all be-all when it comes to composers that have inspired me time and time again. Uh, you know, and like I said, if you put on that song that uh, just opened this episode, I, I feel immediately at peace. And to me, that's the power of music. That's the power of a great film. It's the power of a great book. And I mean, if like if I could do anything in my lifetime, it would be to share that experience with as many people as possible. And whether if it's 200, 2,000, or even just two people, I am grateful that I get to share my love of the music of Rachel Grimes. So that's what's happening here, and um, I guess really quickly here, I first heard music for Egon Schiele uh, back when I was with someone who meant a lot to me, and I played it for her, and we were moved. Um, and during our breakup, I played that record to not only calm me down, kind of use it as a, uh, a tool to reminisce, but in a good way to reflect it also lulled me into like a trance, this restful state that I imagine can happen during, you know, sort of communal experiences. And from there, I delved into the Rachel's uh, discography, handwriting, um, selenography. So many of their catalog moved me. So I remember hearing those records and thinking, I need to compose instrumentals as well. Uh, obviously, there was a lot of ambient music I was really into, uh, including Brian Eno and Aphex Twin. There's just a lot of stuff at the time that was really getting me, um, you know, interested in making music without words. But the Rachels really showcased um, something different that can be done with a quote-unquote sort of classical melu of sorts, and. I've gone on and on and on a lot about musicians and bands that have, you know, inspired me over the years. But looking back, thinking of times when I drove around Northwest Indiana listening to the Rachels and what they did for me therapeutically, they're as important to me as Nirvana or Liz Fair or Matthew Sweet or any alternative rock band of the early to mid-90s that I can list off. So, um, yeah. <laughs> And flash forward to this year when I first heard Rachel Grimes had released a new album. Obviously, I uh, pre-ordered it, got it off of Bandcamp, which you can do too. And uh, there'll be a link in the show notes, of course. Uh, her latest record's called The Clearing, which I absolutely love. And, you know, I, I decided to figure out how to talk with her so I could learn about how 
she specifically makes music because I'm fascinated by learning about the process as you're about to hear. So this interview here took about three or four months to happen, (laughs) which is fine. The fact that this is taking place is kind of an accomplishment. And uh, to talk to one of my musical heroes is something that I'll never forget. It's very gratifying, and I hope you find this conversation as interesting as I did. She's easily one of the most incredibly talented people on the planet, especially if you've ever seen her play the piano live. I imagine you'll feel that exact same way. So without further ado, I present to you my interview with a true hero, as I mentioned. She's been uh, an incredible inspiration for about 13 years for me personally. This is the one, the only, the great Rachel Grimes. When I did a recent interview with a uh, director, there was this long delay (laughs) in between me asking questions and then waiting for answers that it was kind of um, nerve-wracking a little bit. (laughs) It is, especially if you're, like, having a conversation and then you end up talking over each other. Yeah. Um, Yeah, we've come a long way, and yet (laughs) some things are really not so great. Um, But anyway... (laughs) Well, I'm going to say what I think is really great. Your latest record. Um, so let me... Um, first and fo- That was quite the segue, wasn't it? Uh, first and foremost, there are two instrumental albums that I constantly go back to for both meditation and inspiration. Um, one is Aphex Twins' Select selected ambient works volume two awesome i love that and the other is the rachel's music for egon chile (laughs) um love that too (laughs) so to introduce everybody listening today i can easily say that my guest is responsible for my favorite composition uh, Wally, Egon, and models in the studio. There oh. is something about that song that moves me beyond words. And <laughs> I, I can't explain it. Like, it's one of those things, too, where I could play it for a completely different person and be like, yeah, that's pretty. Cool. I liked it. Um, <laughs> whereas I am just like, uh, I don't know, I get goosebumps every time and I just I feel at peace with the world or something I'd, it's hard to just define exactly how music moves you in a way um, and then last year in March I believe I ordered uh, the Marion County 1938 DVD and I also went to the Rachel's Bandcamp site and was lucky enough to receive an envelope full of posters and flyers and assorted goodies Yay. which which came at a time when I needed it. So oh, it, is, awesome. it is with great pleasure that I get to talk to somebody that I consider to be one of the main reasons why I continue to write music and an example of someone who can translate pure emotion and create true works of art. Welcome, Rachel Grimes. Gosh, thank you, Jim. That's an honor. And um, I'm very touched. So thanks for having me. <laughs> Yeah, well, before we talk about your latest record, which of course I adore, um, I would like my listeners to get a sense of your background and kind of how you became the the musician that you are today. What sparked your interest in becoming a composer at what I presume must have been a very young age? Sure. Um, Well, uh, I was very young, and... So, because I was young and just sort of in exploration mode, like most children, I didn't know that I was a composer, and I didn't know that 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 was something to be, really. I mean, I did have little plastic (laughs) busts of Mozart and Beethoven that were kind of little prizes I got from, you know, like, piano recitals. 
I had those on my, you know, on my piano. I knew what composers were, but I didn't think of myself as a composer when I was just making stuff up at the piano, which is sure. what I did all the time. Um, I guess I was lucky enough to get music in my ears and just start playing so early that at least from the sort of intuitive level of just playing music, um, that was always very natural to me and just a place to go to explore, just like going in the backyard and into the woods, you know, they're kind of the same thing for me, even now. Um, and I'm sort of realizing that's a pretty clear metaphor, you know. Sure. Um, I think that I've always associated, you know, just free improvisation, writing music, um, with a sort of similar feeling that it that it has when that I have that I that I feel, you know, when I'm just sort of going into the woods and walking around, you know, taking a hike, um, just standing out in the middle of a giant field and looking at the sky, you know, absorbing the sunlight. Um, so I, I think that that's sort of an older, you know, that's something that's always been with me. It's just, I don't know, there, there's similar ways of experiencing living. Um, the actual brass tacks of being a composer is not bad at all. <laughs> you know, and that's what's taken me so long to to get the skills for and I'm still working so hard at that um, you know I, I played improvisationally at the piano for most of my youth you know and then I was always studying whatever I was studying for piano lessons and um, then I kind of thankfully um, fell into the lap of you know every teenager's dream which was the chance to be in a rock band and so that kind of gave me a, a new opening into the world of like jamming and improvisa improvisation with other people, which of course I love still. And that just, that, you know, was a new frontier. Um, but at that same time, I was also trying to figure out, well, how can I, you know, I had like a really lame seventies, cassette tape recorder that everybody had probably that has a little orange button in the middle you know like yep. you press play and record at the same time of course and I would I would occasionally you know use that to try to capture some of the piano music I was improvising or writing quote, quote unquote but that's about as far as I got until I was age you know 17 or 18 and and then I made a sort of impulsive decision to um, <clears throat> to enroll in music school as a composition student, kind of as a way of terrifying myself into trying to become a composer for written music. So, um, I guess that's when I had to really face the question of what is a composer, you know, as opposed to an improviser. Um, hmm. You know, I guess it's a question a lot of people have had, but, you know, when you, when you compose music, I guess I assume that to mean now that you are setting something to some sort of written form so that it can be replicated. So that, you know, traditionally has been a score. And sometimes I think people think of a composer as someone who is making recordings. Um, but I, I tend to think of composer as being associated with someone who is writing it down in a way that is sort of a universal language and that being notation and that can be shared with anyone who's trained in that notation so they can interpret to some degree, you know, what you put on paper. And, and whether they are you intended is always the, the big question about interpretation. So. Yeah, that makes sense. I've, I was really um, averse to the process of writing down on, you know, um, staff paper and, sheet music and all that because like I I learned myself through just by by feeling and yeah, I almost didn't want to turn it into like a mathematical equation I and I, I I have perfect pitch so I can hear a oh, song wow. and know how to play it for the first time so it was like oh I don't know if I want to learn the actual you know quote unquote composition 
theory part of things um, when most of my heroes really didn't uh, in terms of you know rock bands and musicians and things like that. But um, I guess in, in my mind, I just sort of see maybe a composer like yourself meticulously <laughs> writing down notes on staff paper. Is that like your process or is it more just like an organic improvisational form that that's the way you start out when you write a song or is it really just like meticulous you know note for note writing it down to perfection well perfection is never achieved but (laughs) i would definitely say that it's both okay and that's the, the life's um you know aching challenge for me and I just, before we got on the phone here, I just came up, I just ran across the driveway from my studio and, uh, you know, I'm working on a set of full orchestra pieces right now, oh, wow. which is pretty much bending my brain, you know, and essentially my own form of graduate school because I never got anything more than a bachelor's degree. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of sending myself through a master's doctoral program, <laughs> <laughs> if you want to put it that way. Um and I, I don't, I guess what I remember, like, if I think back to 1989, you know, when I was a first-year composition student, um, I suppose that what you were describing is how I thought it was supposed to be. I'm sitting at a desk with a piece of staff paper and my excellent architecture pencil, and I'm creating this thing in a meticulous way on paper first with some sort of, you know, like really solid compositional theory that that underlies it all and structure and shape, you know, and architecture as a whole. And then somehow that's going to magically become listenable, enjoyable music. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't have the best of experiences there. It was really grinding and difficult. I tried some things um, most people would not want to give those a second listen. A couple things started to work for me, you know, in my second year and in my third year. And I, I was like, okay, okay. I, can, I think that was a moment that kind of was fun for the string quartet that I just put through that torture. And now I think I can try that again. You know, it was just a really slow learning curve for me. And... I think what I finally realized is that because I play the piano and because I am, you know, maybe more integrally a performer first, that if I started using performance and improvisation as more of the first step in the compositional process, Hmm. that I might get closer to the actual music I want people to hear or want to hear myself, you know. So um, that's when I started doing more of like, and of course that kind of requires me being there at a piano or some instrument I can happily play to to kind of participate in creating that, that music for that moment, capturing it in some way with a handheld recorder or whatever, and then going back later and transcribing that, <clears throat> you know, onto paper or what now is, you know, Sibelius, uh, you know, a digital format of paper. Mm-hmm. And that I'm finding even still now is the best way to go. There's a few moments, you know, in what I'm working on right now where, yeah, I might be able to hear it in my head and I'm seeing it on the staff and on my computer and I'm, I'm recognizing, okay, this is the thing I want to try and I just go on and jot it down there, you know. But usually I'm, I'm starting at the piano with some sort of little recorder or I might even do it in Pro Tools as a multi-track thing. And then you know, it's an extreme grinding and slow process. You know, I'm just eventually, I'm getting to the point where the score will reflect what is the combination of my internal imaginings and what I am playing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that makes sense. I, I, I just, yeah, there's just, wow, there's so much to ponder after something like that in terms of, you know, 
um, integrating and finding a marriage between the meticulous process of writing and the organic improvisational feeling part. I really, yeah, I guess it's, yeah, it's fine. It's about finding that harmony, I guess, between the two. Yeah. I mean, that's my, that's my life's search. Mm-hmm. Is that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it has nearly grounded me many times. It's very, very difficult to face days. And, um, you know, I still continue to do foolish things like write emails to people who run businesses that are like for prepare preparation and, you know, they're like civilian geniuses. Hmm. And like a week ago, I was like, well, maybe, maybe I just don't understand what Sibelius is capable of. Maybe we've finally gotten there where, you know, I can play something and record it in an audio, you know, file and somehow Sibelius or some, you know, Shazam type program is going to just figure it out and lay it out for me and then I'm like many weeks saved <laughs> into the process of getting started on something but any kind of performance recognition software I've ever tried it has to be some kind of boneheaded 4-4 four, four, you know straight ahead you're playing yeah. quarter notes great notes and you're sticking to that click track you know in order for it to really interpret properly and then if it doesn't you know, if you're doing something improvisational or with any kind of rubato, you're I'm finding that, you know, you're you're spending so much time, I'm spending so much time correcting uh, the misinterpretation in the software that it's just not worth doing. You know, the mm-hmm. track audio recognition approach, which I I assume there's people out there that have really got a handle on that, but <laughs> I haven't met them. Do you know anybody like that? I mean I don't that's the sort of missing link for me. Like, I've even thought about getting, um, you know, getting a, a, a MIDI setup for my piano so that I could at least create MIDI files. Right. Yeah. And I think that would help. I have a MIDI keyboard, so I can play it on the keyboard, and I do that sometimes. But again, like when I have done that to try to create a MIDI file from what I'm playing, it, it creates, you know, just these bonkers scores and you know it's so hard to break stuff out of that and like put it in the proper register or time signature or you know break it out into chamber music but it's kind of just easier for me in a way not easier it's Mm -hmm. just more manageable for me to just make recordings and then (laughs) listen to them ad nauseum and uh, transcribe it myself and so, because like you, I have a really good ear. I don't have perfect pitch. I have like relative pitch or something like that. Um, you know, I can hear melodies and replicate them, but I'm, I'm not always sure what pitch we're talking about. I can match a pitch. But I yeah, you know, that, maybe I'm more closer to that. Say, that is definitely a B natural, you know. But right. I think it's um, just, it just comes with hearing, you know, those chords over and over and over again that they just become instantly recommi- recognizable. Like, I just yeah, I mean, automatically I can, I can know what an A major sounds like. I can replicate a melody by ear, but I'm not always certain what key it is. And that may be partly because I'm a pianist, and, and I just... I'm so unbiased with regard to keys, you know? Yeah. I play all over the place. I don't care what key it is, but like a vocalist or a string player, you know, when I, when I think about it in terms of the string or a voice, it can usually help me hone in on what the actual pitch, but I actually find that terribly useful that often. But um, <laughs> what I do find is, you know, transcription is essential. You know, if I can figure out how to transcribe what I've done, then that's a big key to kind of marrying the two, which is the yeah. structure of the piece that I'm wanting to create but also allowing the piece to have some sort of like emotional voice and freedom. And, and that is the, to me, that's the sort of, um, that's, that's that nether region that I'm always reaching for, which is an emotional, um, truth of expression laid over the top of a structure that makes sense to me. To me, I think you capture that. Um, that that communal feeling between 
wow, this just sounds really structured, but also very freeing and emotionally uh, true. And I think The Clearing is another example of that. I just I adore it. It's a very flowing kind of dreamscape. And for an album that obviously has no lyrics, it comes across as autobiographical in the deep feelings that the songs themselves possess. And I do have to ask about the title track because it just builds on this single note, almost like one lonely sound that becomes drawn in towards these other sounds from the outside. At first, when I first heard the song, I was reminded of um, that single piano note that dominates certain scenes in the film Eyes Wide Shut, um, which is a, a score that I know people like tend to question like the intent behind just that constant piano, ding, 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 that same note. But here it just, oh my God, the way it builds, it's it's really really something i i'm astonished by it every time i listen to it so i'm just wondering how how a song like this comes into fruition um i mean i guess it sort of just goes back to the process again uh but was this just like any other song that has just sort of come to you where were you when you were writing it so glad you asked me about that song. Uh, very few people have asked me about that one, but it's really a good example of kind of the incredibly slow and circuitous process that I usually am involved in. Um, I don't know if you know the pianist Bill Tom. Oh, I've heard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he and I were on tour together and we had been out about 10 days and we cleverly made it so that the tour would go through his dad's hometown and we would get to play like a house concert for his dad and and, um, stay there like a day or two for rest and then keep going, which was so awesome and much needed because the house concert was so great. His dad made like two kinds of soup and had all these friends over and we had a really fun and intimate concert. And then slept late the next day. And that next day, you know, we just had off. And so I was downstairs and there was nobody around. I think Mills was still asleep. (laughs) I just was playing the piano and just totally, you know, trying to relax. And it was just gray as it gets in northern Germany and just lightly raining. And... Um, so uh, the rain definitely played a part. I mean, as literal as that sounds, it it was just a very gentle, steady rain. And so I was just kind of reacting to that, and I'm just sort of using this idea of a single repeated note that would be like a thread, you know, kind of yeah. a, a metronome. And that was a fun way to just kind of begin and just play. You know, I don't know how long I played, 30 or 40 minutes, and just... It was just gentle improvisation that happens because you're tired and you're just happy to play on a nice old piano in a really old house in Germany, you know. So um, I jotted down a few of those ideas that day and thought about, you know, I think I touched on that idea a few more times on the road and had a chance. And, you know, it was just one of those things where it was just like there are two or three ideas and I got home with that and... I just use those ideas as building blocks for continued improvisation. And then, you know, that whole idea of the architect sneaks in. And so then it's a question of what is that idea doing? What is that idea over there doing? And what is that idea? And what is the instrumentation? What should it be? And so I just imagine it would be three strings and a piano. And just, you know, very slowly started writing it. And it took me a while to finish it because I think I worked on it for a while and then put it down because of other deadlines. And um, 
it took me a while to get it done. But anyway, I premiered it in Louisville, and then I could hear that there were things I wanted to do, and I changed some things, and we made another recording, an actual official recording. And again, I was like not quite there with it. Took it on the road with a group from Amsterdam, a trio from Amsterdam, and you know that's when I really kind of got to the finish line with understanding what the musicality of some of it was and expression and the specifics. Finalized that score, and then then they recorded um, the string parts for me over the top of the piano part later that summer. So it was a multi, it was a couple three years to get that piece just you know in fits and starts. To a where it feels like it could have been kind of an improvisation like is that possible I mean maybe that could happen (laughs) (laughs) that's the thing is like it's hard to tell because like I'm you know obviously I was like eager to talk about the recording process and because it just feels like it's just you know an instinctual song in a way like it just sort of pours out rather than something that takes two or three years and I, th- I mean that as a compliment at, at the same time it's I mean and it's certainly a goal <laughs> <laughs> I would work on it you know for a few days and then put it down for months I just don't oh wow yeah oftentimes things just don't I life interferes I had a lot of things going on in my life at that time and that also came through in music a good bit I would say in that piece in particular you know it's what I was interested in there and maybe this gets more to what your original question was about. But I think what I was interested in is the idea that, you know, this was kind of my lone journey, you know? This is, like, I'm on this thing, and I don't know what it is, and I don't know where it's going. And um, there are times that I turn a corner, and life is just really difficult and unbelievably sad or challenging. And then I can keep going around another corner, and all of a sudden there's, a different scene, you know, there's a little more uh, light in the forest, there's room to breathe, um, you know, and that um, it was going on in a difficult time, and it's one of the reasons I had to put the music down. I was dealing with my friend's illness and mm. family, my mom's illness, hospitalization, um, untold numbers of personal crises that seemed to all pile up at once. And um, so in a way, the music and certainly pieces like the Herald, you know, ended up kind of being more of a reflection of my um, sort of state of mind and desperation to get back into just playing music for music's sake rather than kind of um, drawing a sword, (laughs) you know, to defend even being able to find time to make music. Makes any sense. Oh yeah, no, it totally does, and in, in a way now it puts into context like that single note almost represents you in a way, yeah. uh, and uh, you know throughout that song it, it, it's it's finding uh, you know complementary sounds and whether if it's through nature or through community or just through the songwriting process itself it, it sort of becomes something else. And it's yeah. no longer alone. So that's yeah. And the note is there in every in one or all parts at all times. Right. And the question is: Is it dissonant? Is it consonant? Is it somewhere in between? You know, what are the number of permutations that the note, the quarter note C natural, you know, can take on? I mean, that was certainly yeah. a basic. You know, like if I was at a college giving a lecture, that'd be maybe what I would have started with. <laughs> Well, at this point, I think you should. I think you should be giving lectures on the songwriting <laughs> process. Um, and whereas, like, transverse plane vertical, it sort of set, sets itself apart in that it's, like, immediate and visceral and has this burst of energy. For the vertical section, really, um, to back up a step, the, the piece sure. is really transverse plane, and it's a front section and a rear section, mm-hmm. and they're totally different, and it became quickly obvious 
that I was going to have to record them as two things. And then it also became obvious in terms of releasing an album in today's format-oriented world that it would be better if they were two tracks. So anyway, I split them up. But um, it actually originated as a <laughs> compositional exercise Ooh. that was me taking an existing piece of recorded music that my friends in the city company in New York City have used for 30 years, 25 years anyway, for a floor training exercise for the stage for actors. And it's this crazy piece of Japanese saxophone rhythm music on mm. the front half. And the second half is shakuhachi flute and strings and uh, percussion. And it's a crazy piece of music that um, I love still. And But I basically took the whole tempo, the structure of it, the general shape of where it was going dynamically, what it did for them, and tried to replicate it for, in order to just give them a sort of fresher, modern piece of music for them to work with. And to this day, I don't think they use my music much at all. They still just really love the old piece. <laughs> but um, it was a fun way to kind of approach a, a composition, which is that you already have some of the basic elements laid down. And just transcribing that was already, you know, sort of a bear, but then it was a question of what's the instrumentation. And I just chose instruments I love. So as far as the recording goes, um, you know, you have your string section, which is five or so strings. Um, they were all together in one room, you know, all together. And then the woodwinds, which was, in this case, um, clarinet and oboe, and also the clarinetist also played some saxophones. Um, they're in isolation booths. So... Mm. They recorded with a click track, you can believe that. Or it was kind of a click track. It was like a MIDI percussion thing, click right. track that I um, And um, the harpist was in a separate room also. And then I went back over that, put the piano down over that, and then much later got that kind of mixed. And then we did file with the percussion, and I might be leaving something else. But, um, you know, we did the fundamental ensemble and then a couple layers of overdubs. And sort of the same with the, the horizontal piece. We put the solo on after we got all the basics down. And yet at the same time, it's contrasted later on with pretty much just you at a piano with something like The Air at Night, which yeah. is incredibly moving. It's just one of those songs that I plan to re-listen to over and over again. Um, yeah, wonderful. I'd and that one, go ahead, that one really is an improvisation straight up. Oh, wow. I happened to catch it on a session where I had a little extra time at the end of the day, and it was something that I went back and listened to after the fact and realized I kind of liked it, and I meddled with it a little bit in terms of how the opening is shaped, and then I asked Scott to, you know, create that sound bed that, that it comes in on top of and mm-hmm. responds to. But, you know, that was a straight-up improvisation. But, um, I don't know if it's interesting to you, at this point to know that, you know, basically this album didn't seem like it was ever going to get realized. Um, hmm. First plane, I just about gave up on it many times. It was just, it, it just seemed like it wasn't musically happening. It wasn't coming together in terms of the session. And it, you know, it was so expensive for me to keep trying. Um, but this wonderful chamber orchestra in Palermo, Sicily, invited me to come over and play with them and they wanted to program any music I could throw at them. <laughs> and I was like, uh, well, I have this brand new thing that no one's ever played. What do you think? <laughs> oh my gosh. So they premiered that piece, both sides of it. <laughs> and, you know, they really, this is the orchestra Kandinsky, they really helped me learn what the music was and, you know, um, really get it to a place where I could understand better what, you know, what it is I need to do to finish the score. I mean, it was basically finished, but, like, what is this piece as far as trying to play it? And that was um, a really great experience, as it it is for anybody when you get to hear your music fly. Um, You know, because you can make all the MIDI versions you want of your music, but you just don't know what's possible until you try it with a live ensemble and people bring their own ideas. Yeah. That's got to be incredibly gratifying. It is. 
it's definitely the light at the end of a really long tunnel. <laughs> and I really didn't think this album was going to come together. It just really felt for a long time like it was stuck in the mud. And I think that was more um, a reflection of where I was at in my life. And also that some of the pieces weren't fleshed out enough. They weren't at their final stage. And patience was just my my forlorn best friend for <laughs> a couple of years because I just couldn't. I just, you know, kind of had to put the whole project down for a while, which I did for six or eight months of 2013. I just didn't work on it at all. I'd be remiss <laughs> in not asking about Music Free on Chile because it's yeah. such an important work of art, in my opinion, to me. Um, so how inspired are you by other mediums? Because... Um, you know, my whole podcasting endeavor revolved initially around film as much as I adore music pretty much equally. Uh, and clearly, you know, Egon Shield is one of the greatest painters and artists of all time. Uh, yeah. I'm just curious what that process was like um, recording music for that piece and... I also know that you did that score for Marion County 1938, and I would love it if you would work on a feature film, do, doing a score for a feature film at some point in the future, because your 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 work is uh, would be very complementary, I think, to uh, to um, translating to film in general. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I keep hoping for that call from Sofia Coppola's, you know, yeah. or Terrence Malick or something, but. Exactly. Uh, no, I mean a huge film score is an endeavor that you know I would love to take on, but it would have to be the right kind of you know um, collaborative spirit in terms of approach to material. And I think um, for all kinds of practical reasons, a lot of films now don't even have real scores, or mm-hmm. they have partial scores, and then a whole lot of placed you know music and. Um, you know, that's a more practical and more affordable way to, to do it because, unfortunately, a lot of people leave music placement till the end of the process and then it's a hurry up and go. And composers don't have a lot of chance to interact with the material, the visuals, the, the writing, the director's vision of the piece, which I would love to do. And uh, I hope it'll happen one of these days, but, you know, I've gotten to do that in other ways. And certainly the Aegon Project was one of those ways. I was, you know, working with experimental theater companies in, in Louisville at that time. And, and this company from Chicago came and did a couple of pieces in Louisville. And so I worked with them to make, you know, music for their production. And so I was in the, you know, I was in the room from the beginning and making music for the piece they were working on. And Aegon became this very large-scale project that I was originally hired to play piano music of the era, which would have been Ravel, Satie... Um, and Schoenberg and you know I learned half of that music and was in rehearsals with it until it became obvious that we needed more flexibility and <laughs> so after spending all that time learning that music the director's like well wouldn't it be just easier or you know better if you just wrote something for this <laughs> and so um, you know I was like yes no um, <laughs> but so I you know, I did hop on the wagon of thinking that that would be a better way to go because there was choreography. There was a lot of choreography. There was very little dialogue and there were slides. There was no moving film. But, um, you know, the subject matter was already, you know, just more than any one of us felt we could handle entirely on our own, but were absolutely ravenous to do so, you know, to try. And, um, so anyway, I had a few weekends of rehearsals in Chicago where I would just go up again, taking my little trusty uh, portable cassette player, you know, and um, just improvise to rehearsals. Um, and eventually, I, you know, I came up with a few, like a handful of five, three to five motifs. Um, again, thinking about the bigger structure the idea was that this is a this is a story of his life. It's a traditional biography from you know young age through his work and his unfortunately early death. So 
you know, what's the context of his family life? What is his spirit like? What is his work progress like? What is the context of Europe at this time, the world at this time? So I tried to come up with, you know, basic motifs for each subject. So there was a motif for family life. There's a motif for him as a, as a painter, you know, exploring his own work, which was the self-portrait series. Um, there's a motif sort of for his relationship with his models and his um, girlfriends. And her, his main girlfriend, Bali Neufel, uh, I actually don't remember her last name. Um, and then his later wife, Edith. Um, and then there's kind of more of a this sort of family theme, kind of more since it's sort of more of a global theme because, you know, his and Edith's deaths were part of the influenza epidemic. Um, so, you know, there was just a bigger story there altogether, which was that a third of Europe or something perished in flu after having survived what, you know, was the most devastating war in history mm-hmm. that continent. Um, then a great number of them also died from the flu. So it was a very epic story and with a very tragic ending. And, yeah. so, you know, there was a huge story already built in. His work is so amazing, so poignant, so intimate. Certainly wasn't any lack of inspiration, you know. <laughs> um, for me, it was just a matter of trying to harness that into something that would be focused on the scenes that we were making the play, the choreography, um, and something manageable that could be played with the three instruments that we were going to have on hand, which was... I had hoped would be viola, cello, piano from the the players from Rachel's, but Christian and Eve were not available to do the run. Um, you know, they're both in school or had full time jobs. I don't remember exactly what, but so I hired people from Chicago to, or the director hired them to play for the run. Mm-hmm. Shortly thereafter, you know, the Chicago label had come to the play and really loved the music and approached me about trying to do it as a recording and do it as a Rachel's release. So, at that time, we didn't waste much time. We just were like, yeah, we'd love to do that. We have, you know, find a cellist in Louisville named Wendy Doyle to do it with us, me and Christian, and we, you know, scheduled the recording time and we had like three weeks to rehearse it and get it ready and I think it was three days to record it. Oh, wow. And of course that, you know, you just work within the limitations that you have at the moment. And we wanted to record in a live hall. Um, so Bob wanted to do it basically to, you know, an eight track tape. Um, huh. So he brought all analog equipment and beautiful microphones and preamps. And we did essentially a live recording. We, you know, there were a couple of small edits, but um, essentially we had to decide with each take whether that was a keeper or not, you know, maybe do one more and move on. So it was a radically fast process to both write the music, finish the scores, which I still haven't done in 20 years, and um, make the recording. And... (laughs) You know, the recording was kind of the goal at the time, and then we did have have, um, a couple of short tours that we did with the trio um, in the U.S. and then one that we did in Europe. But, you know, occasionally we'd play one or two of the pieces in a live Rachel's concert, but since it only involved three of us, it was kind of like an interlude, you know? Sure. Um, But uh, because at the time I was still working in Tinsel, you know, I left about a third a quarter to a third of the piano scores were just like half-assed because I, I couldn't get it done. You know, mm. so I was just, I was, you know, quasi improvising it every night. I would basically play the same thing, but I didn't have it written down. And, um, you know, only came to finale years later and then Sibelius. And so actually, right. It's funny. You'd ask about the project because right now I am, um, knee deep in getting all the scores that I do have that are in digital form into the newer Sibelius and then everything I don't have written down, written down with the ultimate goal of getting it all finalized and published for next year for the 20th anniversary of the release of the record. Oh. Oh. So 20 years later, maybe I'll get that done. Wow. I feel like an enormous 
you know, accomplishment for me personally because of the fact that at the time there was, I mean, I was putting notes on the page every night for every performance. There was just, I just couldn't get it done. I'm slow, you know, I just couldn't get the music out or I was always changing it or, you know, um, I, got, I got the string parts all nailed down. Mm. Totally, <laughs> just the piano parts. So anyway, I'll get that done, and um, this is going to be a good winner to get it all, you know, put in a nice modern form. And I think I might also be making it available for like violin, cello, piano, which may make it more feasible or for performance. So I'm actually looking at talking to. Um, you know, a, a lot of different musicians about performing it next year because I would like the music to have a life, you know, on its own. Oh my God! To to hear my one of my top ten favorite records live again, please, 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 <laughs> well, thanks. please come You're back. You're an incredibly generous audience. <laughs> <laughs> please, please, please come back to Chicago and perform um, as much music as possible. <laughs> well, thanks. Thank you. I would love that. I I can't thank you enough for taking time out here with me. Um, as I prefaced earlier, you were, without question, one of my heroes. Um, <laughs> you've you've made work that has done so much for me to calm down my demons or lift my spirits. And as much as it's easy to look at, like you know, the quote unquote rock stars or bands as reasons to love music, I think composers like Dustin O'Halloran and yourself mm-hmm. are even more substantial and important to me. So it's it's really an honor to talk with you, and I hope I get to again. Thank you so much, Jim. It's a beautiful thing to hear. I really appreciate it, and um, all the best to you. Thanks again for the invitation. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully I'll get to see you next year in Chicago. Thanks, Rachel. Take care, Jim. Thank you. You too. Jim. hearing right now is my favorite instrumental of all time thank you so much rachel for uh composing it and you can visit rachelgrimespiano.com thank you so much for listening to this very special pop culture club podcast episode please visit popcultureclubpodcast.com uh more interviews to come hopefully and uh thanks everybody for listening bye-bye